Escape Pod Episode 204 This week's story The Fifth High by Mercurial de Rivera Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Healy. So, this coming Sunday is Father's Day in the U.S. Interesting factoid for you. According to AT&T, Mother's Day is the highest volume day of the year for phone calls in the country. That's not too surprising. But the single biggest day for collect calls? Father's Day. For those of you who would like to feel better about your fathers, we present The Fifth G by Mercurio de Rivera. Mr. Rivera lives in New York and has numerous stories in print, including several to the leading British science fiction magazine, Interzone. He's also associate editor at Sybil's Garage, one of the best-run and downright prettiest of the small press magazines. This story first appeared in Interzone in December 2008. So call your whole family and tell them it's story time. The Fifth G by Mercurio de Rivera G4's scream pierces the Siberian night. My spiked metal boots crunch through the snow as I race towards him, with G6 running at my side. The nano chip in my brainstem clicks on, and I reach out with my mind, but I can't sense even a trace of G4. A few seconds earlier, his form had been outlined by the dark turquoise glow of the force field. We stop twenty feet short of the field's perimeter. Beyond it, the hazy silhouette of the colossal stalk looms, its millions of cilia undulating. My bodysuit hums as it transmits data back to Changchu Base, situated behind the Rusinov ice cap half a mile away. My pulse flutters in anticipation, and I take a deep breath to try to rein in my excitement. I, like all Gs, have been designed with an insatiable curiosity about the stalk's origins and vulnerabilities. Knowing I've been bred to feel this way doesn't make me feel it any less. Where did the stalk come from? Why is it here? How can it thrive in these temperatures? I see the same questions reflected in G6's expression. The commander's cold voice crackles in my earpiece. Proceed with field penetration, G5, she says. Yes, sir, I bark into my helmet audio link. G6 nods at me and I approach the field alone. Our mission objectives are unambiguous. Penetrate the field, climb the stalk, and release the retrovirus before the stalk's radiation kills us in five to six hours. All of us know we're expendable, and we don't care. Or at least, we aren't supposed to. I've told no one, not even G's four and six, but I hope it might be possible to survive this mission. I would like to make a life for myself, someplace warm and far away. After all, our father, Zhi Zhang, has always wanted to live in the tropics. In the perpetual twilight of the North Land, I can hardly make out Zhi's seven and eight in the distance behind us, illuminated specks on the frozen tundra. A gale-force wind lifts a veil of snow that further obscures them from view. I can't help but wonder, how many Zhi's are we? As planned, we have staggered our approach because of the lethal cosmic radiation levels near the stalk. 
I take a deep breath and raise my gloved hands to the force field. This is the moment. The moment I've been preparing for since I opened my eyes and took my first breath and sat up in the holding vat next to five slumbering brothers a year ago. Twelve months of training, all designed for this. But when I think of G4 and how he shrieked, panic threatens to override the curiosity that drives me forward. I push my arms through the field. The reinforced layers of my suit sizzle and smoke, and a stab of scalding pain shoots through my spine. My body armor curls off me like orange peel and dissolves in the air. My skin burns and I scream. In this moment before death, my only thought is a father. I wish he were here to protect me. I see him in my mind's eye, walking out the lab door that final time. Don't leave me behind, Father. Take me with you. And all at once, the burning stops, and I stagger forward. I find myself standing on the other side of the force field, naked. Frigid air doubles me over. I hug myself and dance involuntarily on the snow, barefoot. I make out G6's form on the other side of the translucent field, his dim silhouette barely visible. I shout his name but can't hear his response through the soundproof barrier. Without my helmet, I'm cut off from Chang-Chu base. Fortunately, we've prepared for this contingency. Are you okay, G5? G6's technopathic message comes through clearly. I exhale. Our identical genes and nanochip implants enable us to communicate via the quantum entanglement of our consciousness. Still, Chang-Chu remained concerned about possible phase decoherence due to the field's shifting polarity. But my mental link with G-6 holds steady, and through him I can maintain contact with the commander. I'm trembling, teeth chattering. Suits gone, is all I can manage to think in response. When the stalk first materialized, one of our probes managed to slice off a sample of it. In response... The stalk erected the field. Since then, Chang Chu's further efforts have produced only a stream of disintegrated probes and melted robots. Nothing man-made could penetrate the field. But the hope had been that this latest suit, or at least some part of it, the titanium-layered helmet, the diamond-lined soles of the boots, the reinforced cadmium plating, might at least allow us to make it through. I flex my jaw, think the trigger word, artichoke, and induce vomiting. Three of the five colored storage globules come up easily enough. I think artichoke again and again until I retch up the remaining two spheres. I pluck the pink globule from the pool of vomit, uncap it, and pull out a square piece of fabric the size of a postage stamp. Unfolding it until it's the size of a handkerchief, I shake it in the wind until its adaptive synth-thread fibers expand into a full hooded jumpsuit with spiked rubber foot-bottoms. I step into the suit and zip up, immediately feeling the warmth of the insulated fibers activated by my own body heat. Then I reach down and secure the purple V-sphere containing the retrovirus and jam it into my suit's stomach pouch. As my body warms up, I take in my first clear image of the stalk, its emerald glow washing over the surrounding frozen tundra. Up close, it appears even more magnificent, more alien, 
than I had ever imagined. Its tree-sized fronds flap in slow motion, and its stamen pulses as if taking planet-sized breaths. Overhead, the mosaic of the aurora borealis blazes in the black sky, but its streaming colors are muted by the stalk's pallid green radiance. From this distance, the stalk's stem is larger than a hundred redwoods in diameter. It stretches high into the sky, where satellite photos have shown it to extend just beyond the ionosphere. Now, two years since it had first emerged, it penetrates the planetary crust straight through the Earth's very core from north to south pole. In the orbital photos, Earth resembles an olive pierced by a toothpick. Inexplicably, the stalk's presence has caused no global catastrophe, no tectonic shifts or tidal waves, as the experts predicted. There have been only the nightmares, unrelenting, feverish nightmares of pulsing darkness unleashed across the world. Father told me it took only a few days of debate among bleary-eyed government leaders before the first nuclear bombs rained down on the stalk. To no effect. The stalk's field held firm. I screw open the three remaining green globules that lie in the pool of vomit and pull out the nanotech components, which I place side by side in the snow. Normally, the metal pieces would have elongated and skittered towards each other to form a thumb-sized spectral analyzer and climbing tools, but the inert fragments simply sit there. Chang Chu's worst fears have come to pass. The field's dampening effect extends to nanotech. Yet somehow my implant remains operational. Could it be because of its integration with my brainstem? I try manually wedging the pieces together to no avail. What would father do? I move to my left and step into a pile of charred and mangled limbs. G4. I jump back and gasp. To my left and right, similar mounds of burnt flesh lay half-buried in the snow. G's one, two, and three. I drop to my knees and cover my mouth, this time trying to suppress the urge to vomit. My brothers. I know we're expendable. I know that we're all meant to die for a greater cause, but I trained with them and loved them. No sooner do I feel my eyes tear up and my throat catch than the programming kicks in. And I'm thinking again about the stalk. How had I been able to traverse the field without suffering the same fate as my brothers? As if on cue, G6 projects the commander's words. How did you do it, G5? she asks. How did you make it through? I don't know. You're clear to join him, G6, she says. I want to shout a warning to him, to urge him to run away, but I know G6 is as compelled as I am to explore the stalk. The shadow on the other side of the barrier grows larger as G6 approaches. As he begins to push through the force field, he screams, just for a fraction of a second. This time his armor sizzles as it dissolves, and so too does G6. Brother! I shout but the echoes of his squelched scream fade away with the rest of him. Two seconds later, a billow of brown ash and chunks of burnt flesh plop to the snow. I slap my hands against the field to test its solidity from within, even though I know, we all know, that this is a one-way mission. 
It feels like cold, smooth marble. The animals Chang Chu Base pushed through the force field over the past two years, a German shepherd and two chimpanzees, never emerged, though their silhouettes remained visible until either the cold or the radiation killed them. The field can only be penetrated from the outside, and how, I still don't know. As G7 draws nearer to the force field, his thoughts chime in my mind. Stop dallying, G5, and carry out the mission objectives. Genetically, he is me, but G7 and the higher number Gs, how many, I don't know, were all grown in different vats from ours. Apart from our technopathic link, I feel no emotional connection with him. In fact, G7 has rubbed me the wrong way with his officiousness since this mission began. While we are certainly designed to be the same, I found over the past twelve months that even my VAT brothers had developed slightly different temperaments. G4 had worked harder than the rest of us. G3 drew pictures on a sketch pad when nobody watched. G2 kept to himself and rarely spoke with the rest of us. G1 smiled more than the other Gs. I stagger over the snowdrifts toward the stalk's base. The snowstorm has intensified into a blinding squall. Through a canvas of luminescent lime-colored snow, I make out the outer edges of the stalk's swaying fronds at a distance of about a hundred yards from the force field. It's doubtful I can maintain technopathic contact with G7 during the long climb. From this angle, the stalk fills the sky. Half of the millions of dark green cilia furring its stamens seem to wave me forward, while the other half shoo me away. A sizzle slices through the air, and I look back over my shoulder. Another swell of ash and body parts belches through the field. G7. I pause. This time I feel only slight sadness before thoughts of the stalk occupy me again. I extend my mind and already sense G's 8 and 9 approaching the field. We are all redundancies, extra copies of Father, a highly qualified, physically fit scientist. Father had once told me privately that the public viewed us as teenaged automatons sacrificed for a noble cause. But he didn't see me that way. I'm sure of it. Father favored me over my Vat brothers for some reason. Prior to our upload of his skill sets necessary for this mission, he had read to me, tutored me, played with me. But then he left. Without even saying goodbye, he'd left months ago to join the American expedition at the other end of the stalk, in the Antarctic. When I reach the base of the stalk, I scoop up snow that resembles green slush and fling it underhand in the direction of the swaying leaves. No reaction. The log-sized, rubbery appendages continue waving in slow motion. I creep forward. I extend my hand and caress one of the fronds with the tip of my gloved finger. It stops squirming and becomes rigid. I touch another one. It feels synthetic, like the leaf of a plastic palm tree. And it, too, stops moving, jutting outward solidly like a gangplank. I place one foot on a leaf and wrap my arms around another one. Raising my foot, I climb a step, then another. As I pull myself up from leaf to leaf, my biceps burn. The slippery appendages make it difficult to get traction, even with my spiked soles. 
The plan calls for me to climb the stalk, break open the V-sphere, and release the virus into a cavity detected by radar at its apex. In my powered armor, with its oxygen supply, the climb might have been possible. Now, at some point, when the radiation has weakened me, and I can go no further, I will reach into my pocket and release the retrovirus that will work its deadly effects on the stalk, on me, and on all life in the region. This will mark my grand exit. Alive for twelve months and gone. It isn't fair, but at least I will have made a difference. At least I will have made Father proud. The stolen memory surfaces again. Ji Zhang's memory from his childhood, of standing at the edge of a log that hangs high over a swimming hole. Jump! 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 The boys chanted from the pond below. Swimming is instinctive, dog turd! One of them shouted. Yellow belly! I stepped off, holding my nose as I'd been instructed, and hit the water. And sank. Panic. I couldn't tell up from down. My heart hammering, I punched and kicked furiously. I swallowed water. I was going to die. I wanted to live. Someone grabbed my waist, pulled me upwards. I was breathing liquid, and my head emerged out of the water. I tried inhaling, but could only cough. It's all right, son, Ji Zhang's father said. It's all right. His white shirt and tie were drenched. Loose bills from his pocket floated in the pond like water lilies. The memory isn't mine, I remind myself. It is father's. During the uploading of his expertise in chemistry and biology, I have picked up this one stray memory, this thread pulled from his life tapestry. The story told for public consumption, father explained, is that all Xi's are tabula rasa, blank soulless slates upon which Chang Chu base inscribes only the most rudimentary skills necessary to accomplish missions such as this one. But every Xi in my vat confided to me that random memories always snuck through during the upload. This is our secret. I continue climbing. The storm is subsiding, and thick, lazy flakes flutter down. From this vantage point, I can make out the frozen Kara Sea in the west, the Laptev Sea in the east, the mountainous islands off of the peninsula on the Arctic coast of Siberia. Below lies twilight frigid desert, barren tundra coated with permafrost. I perch on a leaf at least two hundred feet off the ground, determined to go as high as possible before I release the virus. I still don't think I can reach the cavity at the stalk's crest, where the retrovirus is expected to work to maximum effect. A tickle on the back of my leg grows into a sharp jab. When I look down, a red thorn the size of a switchblade protrudes from my thigh. I grit my teeth and yank it out, and notice, for the first time, the rows of thorns that coat the bottom of the fronds. Light-headed, I extend my mind for G8. I wonder whether the field's wavering polarity at this elevation will permit a technopathic link. That's when the thoughts assault my brain. Lost. I am lost. Rescue me, we. Don't leave me here, we. What are you? Can you really think? Do you know of the ether sea? We wallowed in its infinite rich nothingness. 
A shaft of photons shot through us, and I, we, were awed. We are the invisibles, the intangibles. We traced the bullet of light to its point of origin, and we saw it. The most exotic substance in the universe. Solid matter. Then we sensed it. Something never conceived of before. Floating flecks blanketed in folds of gentle darkness, sparkling and reflecting flickers of light. And on these flecks, conscious matter. Microdots of self-conscious matter. You. I pull back my thoughts as if I've touched a hot stove. What was that? The roiling darkness stays in my mind. Are these the images that have haunted dreams across the globe? My brothers and I have been designed with immunity to the nightmares. An icy pink coating of blood covers my leg. I rip off the right sleeve of my jumpsuit and use it as a bandage to stanch the bleeding. Drugged. The thorns have drugged me, made me susceptible to the alien nightmares. When I look down, the flapping leaves obscure my line of vision. I grab hold of another leaf and another. Minutes pass. Hours. I don't look down anymore. I keep my eyes fixed on the next frond above me. The freezing cold numbs my exposed right arm. I don't think I can go any farther. I reach for the V-sphere in my pouch. But, just as I am about to pull it out, the world spins. I'm losing my grip, surrendering to exhaustion. I must open my eyes. I must stay awake. My fingertips slide off the frond, and I fall. We fell away through darkness. We retreated into the cool lightlessness of the intangiverse, but the memory of the exotic, matter, conscious matter, stayed with us, haunted us. And so, for millennia, we formulated our plan to reach out and communicate with the corporeal, the conscious solid. Now I'm no longer we. I miss we. Can you follow what I'm saying, Particle? It can't understand me, we. Save me, we. I open my eyes and find myself thousands of feet in the air, entwined in the stalk's cilia. I no longer need to climb. The tendrils encircle my arms and legs and pull me upward at an accelerating speed. I'm moving through a cloud bank. The harsh, wet wind cuts my face. At this elevation, I can't make out any features on the ground. G5. G29's distant thoughts echo in my mind. G29? What happened to G8? The field's interference is worsening. I can barely register your thoughts, G29, I say. The commander, you release the virus. I don't think the stalk means us harm, G29. It seems lost, alone. Kill it! I palm the V-sphere, but I feel weak, unsteady, and, for the first time in my life, uncertain. I close my eyes. We are the dark cosmic ether sea undulating into infinity. Then I am torn away from we, 
ripped and shunted and coiled into an abyss of hot swirling chaos. I emerge from we, twisted and congealed and shaped. I am alone. I am solid. I am here, but my thoughts, my experiences are for the we. We are kindred. Yes, I reply. Kindred. You do understand. You do think. Why have you taken this form? I became the most common of living solids here. The most common? From father's uploaded expertise, I imagine the pyrodictium and arche microorganisms that layer the ocean bottoms, the vegetation thriving in dense rainforests. Consistent with the sample of it we had taken, the stalk has adopted a hybrid form, patterned after earth life. I am no longer we. I cannot go back. I cannot go back. When I open my eyes again, I am no longer ascending the stalk. I am at its very peak, a flat circular summit about fifty yards across, with a depression at its center. It resembles a valley filled with squirming sea anemones. Above, the stars blanket the black sky. I try to stand and take a tentative step. I move in slow motion, in zero gravity. How am I breathing? Atop the carpet of squiggling tentacles. They push me away from the ledge and down toward the center. As I ride this wave, I push my hand into my pocket and clutch the V-sphere that contains the retrovirus. Chang Chu Base doesn't know the stalk is sentient. They don't know it's only here to explore, to learn about us, to relay information home. They don't understand its loneliness. The stalk's tentacles carry me farther toward the cavity at the summit's center until I reach a bottomless pit, a cosmic maw that I know on some primal level reveals the stalk's true form, a blackness so pure that it seems to pulse. I start to go over the edge. No! A voice calls out in my mind. I'm not sure whether it is my own thoughts, or G-29's, or someone else's. I grab hold of one of the tentacles on the summit's surface and pull myself back. Clutching clumps of tendrils, I walk on my hands in the microgravity, tugging my way back from the chasm. Why haven't you killed it? G-383's thoughts resonate in my mind. G-383? What happened to G-29, I ask, though I know the answer. Just like I know what has happened to G-4 and G-7 and every G that has tried to pass through the field except me. The field's polarity has shifted and stabilized, G-3. You're coming through clearly. Release the virus, now! I twirl the V-sphere in my hand. The commander must be unable to activate it remotely due to the field's dampening effect, or she would have done so by now. At this moment, I come to the realization that I will never be able to bring myself to release the virus. I won't kill the stalk. That's a direct order from the commander, G-383 says, picking up my mutinous decision. I pepper my thoughts with the word artichoke, and sense G-383's queasiness. That'll keep his mind at bay. I refuse, I say. 
After an extended pause, he says, Brother, I understand. You're confused. Injured. Listen, I'm in contact with Xi Zhang. I freeze at the mention of Father's name. Hello, Five. G-383 now projects Father's words as he hears them. Hello, Five. G-383 now projects Father's words as he hears them. Father, it is you! The simultaneous assault in the Antarctic has failed, and G's 50 through 200 have been expended in the process. It's time for you to do your duty, Five. You don't understand, Father. It's sentient. It's been ripped away from something unimaginable, something not even material. It's a speckle of dark energy, a conduit for information. It's been sacrificed to learn about solid matter, about us. It means us no harm. No, it's you who don't understand, Father responds. Whatever its intentions, the stalk poses an unprecedented threat. Even before the nightmare started, the government leaders had decided to take preemptive action. I don't want to kill it. It's not our decision to make. Trust me, Five. Tell me, how did you make it through the field? And, all at once, something about his words makes me realize the truth. When I had crossed the field, I was thinking about Father, about how he left me. In that instant, the stalk had somehow, impossibly, accessed my quantum communications, accessed my consciousness. It must have sensed a shared feeling, a shared experience, loneliness, abandonment. It empathized with me. All the others, except the subject animals, had approached it with hostile intent. I tried to clamp down on my thoughts. Too late. Thank you. G-383 says. Now we know what to do should the retrovirus fail, Father adds. I have one more thing I must tell you, Five. Daffodil. Daffodil, I think. I clench my fist involuntarily. A hiss erupts, and a dirty brown gas sprays from my stomach pouch. I've activated the virus. I remove the V-sphere and hurl it over the side, away from the stalk. I'm too late. The stalk shudders and sends me flying onto my back. I'm knotted in a bed of anemone-like vines. The area around me heaves and pulses. Tendrils sway. Across the summit, tentacles stand on end and lose their bright colors. They take on a sickly, jellyfish-like transparency. I stagger to my feet again. What happened? A trigger word. A failsafe I knew nothing about. Father made me activate the V-sphere. My head pounds. I can't tell whether it is the sting of betrayal or the effects of the retrovirus. Why did you do it, Father? Don't you care that I'm going to die? There's a long hesitation before he addresses me again. You're dying for a greater purpose, a noble cause. Oh, Five, I've done you a terrible disservice with my attentions. It was a weakness on my part. His projected voice sounds so sad, so weary. I've made you think that you matter. The stalk shakes and sends me hurtling back toward the opening at its center. 
I should be resigned to my fate, like every other G. But I can't help it. I want to live. Father! I scream. No response. I hold my hands to my temples. The alien thoughts explode in my mind again. I am losing this shape. I must leave. But I thought you had been left behind, that you couldn't go home again. I cannot return to the ether sea. I am transcending to the other plane, conceived but never seen, neither matter nor non-matter, alone, without we. But I don't want to die. Die? It trills in a way that I somehow recognize as curiosity. What is die? I look down and see the Earth's surface below my feet. The entirety of the stalk is now transparent, and the force field's blue glow is no longer visible. My breathing becomes labored as the retrovirus works its way through me. My bare, frostbitten arm becomes transparent. My feet and legs lose their color. The stalk rumbles, and its base, embedded in the Arctic ice, breaks loose. I hurtle sideways as the stalk quakes. And in that final instant, as the left side of my body begins to fade altogether, a tickle of a memory, a shadow of a thought, creeps over me. A sense of déjà vu. Don't leave me behind. Take me with you. I extend my hands and my mind and feel its cool embrace. Come, Particle, join me in the journey, so that I can be we again. Reality dissolves around me, and an obsidian wave washes over the horizon, a wave that wipes clean the star-lined night sky like an eraser moving over a blackboard. Then I realize it isn't the stars that are disappearing. It's me. And that was our story. I don't think I can comment on the ending without weakening it. I was talking about Father's Day before, though. Never mind that I miscalculated and somehow got my entire family and social circle convinced that it was last Sunday. I thought Mother's Day is the second Sunday in May, Father's Day has to be the second Sunday in June. That was an individual error, but it does mean I got the nice dinner out a week early. Also, all the freaking out. It's a weird holiday for me. I tend to step back and try to judge myself. Am I being a good father? I think, like a lot of people, I didn't have a really solid reference point for an engaged, supportive father when I was growing up. I try to do better by Alex. Well, if anything, I overcompensate in making sure he's loved and gets plenty of attention. But it's not something you can ever pin down to a checklist and say, yes, I did all the right things. This week's story illustrates a few of the wrong things, certainly. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is distributed on a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. You can clone it all you like, just don't sell it or change it. All of the rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, please consider donating via the PayPal link at our site, so that we can continue to feed our authors. Also check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, and our fantasy podcast, Podcastle, at their .org domains. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation is by Harper Lee. 
In my opinion, To Kill a Mockingbird is the best novel in the English language. It's not my favorite novel, but I think it's the best. The character of Atticus Finch illustrates my ideal of fatherhood. Within the book, he says, When a child asks you something, answer him, for goodness sake. But don't make a production of it. Children are children, but they can spot an evasion faster than adults. An evasion simply muddles them. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun.